Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello and welcome to this next episode of Canine's Talking Sense, where I'm continuing my conversation with uh, the staff and individuals that work at the Penn Vet. Today's episode is going to be geared towards the law enforcement side of the house over at Penn Vet with Robert Doherty. Robert, thank you for coming on the show and, um, you know, give a quick like little rundown of your background, how you got to Penn Vet and then what you do now at Penn Vet with the uh, law enforcement side of the house. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you, Cameron, for, uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been listening to your podcast among others. And, um, so I really feel, um, you know, very honored that, uh, that you've reached out, um, this way. So oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad that you guys take the time to, uh, you know, sit down and get interviewed by me and with all the little crazy questions I'll come up with. Good. Um, so my background may not be that unique getting out of the Marine Corps. My first time, um, I, went and got a job with the police department, which was, you know, always my, my goal as a kid to become a cop. And in uh, 1985, got hired by the police department. And two years later, uh, I was given the chance to get on the canine unit, which was uh, unexpected um, kind of a lateral move. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of unheard of because I'd only been on for two years, but I lucked out in where the, some of the other uh, people that put in for it had been on for a while, had probably um, gotten their name on the on the blacklist, <laughs> and I was the I was the new guy, and um, so I was uh, again lucky enough to get get selected for canine then. Um, so I worked. I retired um, 31 years later, and I was lucky enough to work in the unit for 27 years. Wow, and in yeah, and in those 27 years, I worked um, one single-purpose dog, and two dual-purpose dogs, and um, probably my last working dog, um, he died unexpectedly of cancer. And my department did a really good thing for me, which is they kept me on the unit and made me the uh, trainer, and I administered, administered training for the unit 
uh, up until the time I, re I actually retired. Um, so once, and so kind of going back to about 2012 or 13, uh, the Penn Vet Working Dog Center opened up. And I so happened to know Amory D'Angelo, who is um, my immediate supervisor. And she, who, uh, she's a former New Jersey State Police major. She was very instrumental in creating the canine unit in Jersey when she was a sergeant. But uh, we, I kind of hooked up with her, and I, I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, we're training puppies, and we're making them search and rescue dogs. And okay. if you guys want to you guys want to come down and train here and train on a facility love to show you around so i found myself bringing the unit down there we trained for the day we got the tour and um i drank the kool-aid um, <laughs> I, I started to volunteer down there um hiding in barrels for search and rescue dogs uh, watching them do some uh some scent work they were doing scent work back then as well mm -hmm. uh, very differently than than I had ever experienced doing detection work. And over the period of time, I would work my shift and I would go down there and I would volunteer. And there were some days where I would get off a 12 hour night shift and I would go down for four or five, six hours and go home, get some sleep and then go back to work and show back up the center. Nice. Um, in 2014, um, so the, the, there was an initial, the initial program was, was search and rescue. Um, they had never had any plans to go law enforcement. But in the first group of puppies that we, that we received down there, um, they had two dogs that were not going to work on Rebel. And they were, you know, we and Emory looked at them and we said, these are police dogs. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, you know, everything about was one female Dutch Shepherd and one male Shepherd. So... And I spoke to Cindy. We went to Cindy Otto, Dr. Otto, mm -hmm. and kind of made our case for, hey, if you know these dogs are never going to work rubble, and if you give us a chance, we'll make them police dogs for you. So uh, we were able to train those two dogs in basic patrol work. They, those were the first two law enforcement dogs that went out our door, which they went to the transit police here in Philly. Okay. Uh, so... Since then, and if I'm going too fast, let me know. Oh, no, you're doing good. Uh, so since then, we've gone through a number of dogs that have entered our, our program. And we have, I think to date, we have over uh, 80, it's about 81 or 82 dogs that have completed either a single or dual purpose uh, career with us from eight weeks old till the time they walk out. Uh, but since 14, we've been able to, to um, expand the law enforcement program to include um, in-service work where we do about almost 40 teams for detection, patrol, um, everything from explosives, narcotics, uh, arson. And we do two classes a year. One's a detection class and the other one's a patrol class. And... In between them, we're raising, we're raising puppies and working dogs. Okay. To be, yeah. So what, what have you, you know, because obviously you, you've been around the block in this career and you've seen a lot of the good, the bad, the ugly. What have you seen as a distinct and clear advantage by 
being able to raise these pups to become, you know, working dogs in law enforcement? So I think part of it is, and this is kind of the philosophy we use down there right now, because when we select a dog, we're, we're selecting them primarily on the pedigrees and the genetics and some history talking to the breeders that are donating their dogs of, you know, what, what other, you know, what have they produced? Like what working dogs have they produced? So we're pretty good. Actually, Emory is very good at selecting some really nice puppies from pedigrees and from just talking to breeders and doing some background. So when we get these dogs, if, and they all have the same, so they all get put through the same basic foundation. Mm -hmm. So everything from, uh, you know, proprioception to environmentals to, I mean, you know, to, to, so we have a fit, fit to work program. Um, and then we start their search work, which is live search, you know, and also detection work. So during that phase of a couple of months of working these dogs, they start to tell us what they're really going to be good at. Um, and I guess to answer your question is we get to, start to evaluate these dogs early. So we get to see their environmentals, their strengths, their weaknesses. Um, some of the things that are genetically there, like bite work. I mean, I, uh, you start to see um, dogs that are nervous in certain aspects where you start to kind of get this picture of a dog when they're you know, four or five months old. And this is a general statement, but you start to see the dogs that are, are stronger in one area than another. Um, so if we see, you know, and for the dual purpose program, we're talking about pointy ears. So if we start to see some really strong candidates for police work, we start to, um, work them in that direction. So we up their skill levels. Um, and you know, the same would go with the USAR program and the single, single purpose program is that we start to work on, on getting them to their end goal or our which is their careers. Yeah, no, that kind of brings up a, another one that all people will always want to know is, so I'll start with this. What age do you guys start looking at the dogs? And when, and let's just, so we'll go like the step-by-step. Step. So sure. at, what's the first age that you guys go, okay, we're going to start looking at it. And then you see what you like. So talk about like what age and what you look for. And then if you see what you like, what you do you do next? So, so dogs come in at eight weeks. Um, you know, we've, we've had some dogs come in as late as 10 or 12 weeks for various reasons, but basically we like to see a dog come in at eight weeks at, at eight weeks. Um, we, within, within a week, within a week of that dog coming after it leaves quarantine, we start to do things such as live search, you know, call them puppy runaways um like getting to see um just that basic that basic part of the dog you know do they want to you know do they want to chase something and find something um we start to imprint them uh early that same week in detection work and we start to you know see which dogs almost right away or are kind of more um uh, you know more tuned to that kind of work Okay. And of course, you know, in week one, you can only tell so much in week two, you can only tell so much, but you start to see these dogs. Um, and of course it's going to 
very on the dog and on the breed sometimes, but you'll start to see dogs that almost within a couple of weeks, you can start to see um, the potential uh, of what they could be given the right, given the right training and the right motivation and taking your time and developing those, those little tiny uh, tidbits that they, that they, they kind of give you mm-hmm. and then, and then kind of building blocks and building blocks to get those dogs to a point where you, where we can say, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm kind of ballparking this, but I'm going off of some of the dogs that we've had in the past is that somewhere around four, four months, mm-hmm. you start to see which dogs are going to be really strong in which areas. Okay. Um, and it's unusual for a dog to be strong in both search and rescue and police work. Mm-hmm. For example, you know they they're you know we've had those dogs that are like they could go either way, mm-hmm. but usually usually they start to show you, you know which ones are going to be your stronger police dogs, and which ones are going to be your stronger rebel dogs. Um, you know I don't want to, you know, and we also have a, a medical detection area too. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's a that's a whole nother that's a whole nother program there with those dogs. But um, and then what a lot of times what happens is that you'll get and this is not always true, but most of the floppy years, like some of your labs that end up not being really strong on rubble, mm-hmm. uh, end up end up as being really good uh, single purpose dogs. Sure. So so you can slide those dogs over there. Occasionally we'll get. Um, we'll get some pointy ears that are just not strong dual purpose dogs. They're going to, you know, they'll be great single purpose dogs. The problem nowadays is that nobody wants a pointy, you know, yeah. very few people want a pointy ear bomb dog yep. or drug dog. And that, you know, that's, a, that's an issue for us as sure. I'm sure it is for a lot of people. Um, and then again, once, you know, once a dog is in about, I like to say, um, we're pretty good at, at determining like right, right around six months, five to six months is that we're, we're putting that dog on the path to where we think it's going to end up as a career. Yeah. So at, at eight weeks old, let's say like you guys said, you bring the dogs in and you're doing some of these puppy runaways. You, you guys are already putting the eight week old puppies on a specific target detection odor. Is that, did I understand that correctly or was I off? By so what? No, so if um, if we're to, if we if we want to talk strictly detection, um, uh, you're, you're probably familiar with uh, the the UDC Universal mm-hmm. de- Detection Calibrate that comes out of uh, uh, Florida International University. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we we start to imprint them on that. Gotcha. With within the first week. Yeah, yeah. I remember Cindy um, talked about that, and and what I spoke to her was now that Dr. Furton has come up with that lack of a better term, neutral odor training aid that can be used to teach a dog how to detect and hunt and search and, you know, solve, let's just say, lack of a better term, odor puzzles at a young age um, because that odor is, uh, that odorant isn't in anything else other than what we're using it for in that development stage, correct? Correct. So, so we're, and, and we haven't had any issues. Um, we've been really careful with it. Uh, as far as, you know, we know it's not in the natural environment. So 
we can start that that process of of the dog, you know, hunting for odor, um, either sourcing it or or got you know you know the, you know recognizing that odor to the point where at a very young age these dogs are hunting for odor, mm-hmm. um, and it's really it's really cool to see, um, and you know depending on the dog I've I've had dogs I've had you know the one specific male puppy that was you know, and he still is, you know, he's, he's, he's worked for a police department now, but he was, I mean, he was, he was rocking it at three months old. Wow. Um, and, um, and when I say that, I just mean, you know, he was, he knew what odor was. Yeah. He, he knew what to look for, for how to look for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then obviously as they get older, we start to build up their skills and that we build up, um, the problems. So the problems become harder, um, you know, based on their age, based on their level, as you know, you can't treat every dog the same. So we may have you know, one dog that's excelling really well and you have other dogs that are just lagging behind. But, you know, in the end, they all end up coming out the same as long as you just don't try to, you know, you know, force that you know, round, just, that round peg into a square hole kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have five, you know, four dogs are doing well and you have one dog that's not doing well and you just don't want to toss that you know, say that that dog that's not doing well and, and just get rid of them because I've seen some really good dogs come out really slow. Sure. Oh um, yeah. And it's, it just, it's just a, a matter of taking your time, I think, and then recognizing what it is you need to work on. So what are some of the things? So obviously we know one of the number one things that wash out a lot of dogs is environmental aspects. Um, so during this critical stage uh, where these dogs are, let's say eight weeks old, let's say take it eight weeks to 12 weeks, maybe a little bit further, 18 to 16. Um, what are critical things that people should be doing with these puppies for the environmental aspect to prepare them for that career as a dual purpose or single purpose or just a professional detection dog? Yeah. So um, I, I can just speak to what, what I like to do, mm-hmm. which is, um, again, uh, you know, we used to just take front, like take, take these dogs out into the environment. We were in a city environment, mm-hmm. so we can take these dogs on um, at 12 weeks out on two street walks where we have traffic and noise and people and bikes. And, you know, and we can start to look at the puppy then and say, you know, is anything bothering this dog? Um, and then kind of make notes of it and say, okay, we've got to back off here a little bit. The dog, you know, too much noise, too much, you know, there's too much going on. Let's back off and then um, move into it a little bit slower. Uh, we can go, you know, um, graded steps, different surfaces, dark and light rooms, um, floors, steps, up and I mean, anything you can think of is exposing them early and just taking note of what what is solid and what is not. And then kind of building on that, if I've got a dog that doesn't really want to go up steps for some reason, um, okay, maybe it's not time. Maybe I've got to wait a little bit longer, but then we're going to eventually, you know, move in that direction. Um, we do a lot of things uh, like agility. So, you know, puppy agility being that they may be walking, um, you know, planks that are six inches off the ground. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but you'd be surprised how many dogs at six inches off the ground either can show you that they're afraid of heights or not. Oh yeah. Just as an example. So you start doing all that early 
and really just making it a game and making the game fun so that they want to do it. And that's the, that's the thing I think is like everything that I think you should do with a puppy is that you should make it so much fun is that they can't wait to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll see that we'll see do- dogs offering us behaviors because, you know, um, because they just want to keep, they, they just want to do it. And that's when you start to go, okay, this is, this is getting better. You know, this dog, you know, is dragging me over to a set of open steel steps because every time we go up and down steps, she has a good time. And so that's, you know, that, so that's, I guess it's part of it is just exposing them early and, then, and keep exposing them because we've seen dogs go through fear periods where, you know, they've never had a problem with steps before, but mm-hmm. all of a sudden now they don't want to go up, up steps. Sure. Um, so, you know, we you have to kind of keep your eye on that too. Um, we have a foster program. So all these dogs go home and, you know, with a foster family, get dropped back off the next day. So we give those foster families a lot of instruction of, you know, getting the dog out, getting the dog out, exposed to other people, exposed to children, exposed to, you know, other aspects of life that we can't always expose them to at, at, at work or at sure. the center. So, and that's big. I mean, as you know, the environmentals will pretty much mm-hmm. have most most evaluations of a dog that's coming from wherever at 16, 18, 15 months. And if the dog won't go in a dark room, people just, they don't want to look at that dog anymore. Um, you know, and that dog ends up getting, you know, held up at the vendors for a while while they work on it. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily their fault, but, you know, I don't, my opinion is that there's not a lot of environmental work going on in Europe all the time. No, yeah. I mean, obviously we see it, uh, you know, consumers that are buying that dog at, let's say, 10 months, year old, maybe 18 months old if the dog is still there at that age. But, yeah, it's, you know, due to the demand of the buyers, the vendors overseas are getting them out as quick as they can but when that happens there's sometimes that gap where the dog does not get that level of environmental exposure uh comfortability with certain aspects and it kind of falls into the hands of the buyer here stateside that's now like oh wait a second you know i've paid however many thousands of dollars for this dog it doesn't even like you know, the standard slick floors or it doesn't, it can't handle a noise of uh, a vehicle or what have you. And it's kind of the, we're victim of our own demand. You know, a lot of the vendors are just getting dogs out to us as quickly as we want them. But that also means there's going to be, you know, things that aren't being done. So as you've been describing this stuff, a, to me, and I would think to the listeners, a clear advantage of raising the dogs, uh, for ourselves, we do a lot of that work. You know, we're putting in that dedicated time to that environmental exposure to get the dogs accustomed to the various different working environments that they'll face, but doing so at a, you know, successive approximation style of doing it little by little, getting them there and then capitalizing on what we see in that dog's natural ability and building it even further or taking one who may be a little less likely to do something spending that little extra time and getting them over that hump and then now they're performing as good as some of the best dogs are doing 
and it gives us gives a good gives us a good picture too that when we're working these dogs, um, you know, you might have a you know a you know I'm just going to throw out some some you know, have a five month old puppy who is you know biting nicely and biting hard you know the way you want them at five months, um, and then one day uh, while you're working the dog, um, you know you accidentally kick over a trash can and the dog leaves, you know, let's go to bite. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go, okay, well, you know, wasn't expecting that. So now, you know, you know and obviously, you know, does the dog come right back on the bite? Does he, does he now, the trash can has now freaked him out so much that he doesn't want to bite anymore. There's so much you can see young and then take that and say, okay, let's, let's step back. Let's see if this is a, going to be a problem. Or is this something that just he, you know, he or she just didn't understand and, 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 you know, we'll work through it. So there's a lot, you know, when you're raising these dogs, you start to have the ability um, to individualize the dogs to say, okay, this dog, um, you know, is solid in all these, these areas. However, you know, does, you know, we're all noise sensitive. So is that something that's going to carry them through? training or do we have to actually say listen i you know thinking ahead and saying listen i can't have this dog if he's at 12 months now or 13 the same dog if he still has that same noise sensitivity mm-hmm. i can't put this dog out on the street with a with a police officer if the dog is going to pop off a bite because of a noise so it kind of gives us that that ability to um take a dog as far as they can go and that could be all the way to their careers or say, okay, you know what? This dog has so many good aspects. It could almost be a dual purpose dog, but it's not going to be. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we're going to take, it's good detection work and it's going to be a single purpose dog because, um, you know, we've learned from our mistakes. I mean, you know, I've learned from my mistakes. I can surely tell you that. Yeah. Same here. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, and I, I think I had to separate trying to train a puppy to be a big dog, mm-hmm. but, but you still have to remember that someday that puppy is going to have to be that police dog. And, you know, um, I think initially when I started training, I was kind of like, Oh, this, I have this little puppy, six months old or four months old. And I'm going to start training him like he's a big dog. And that was a big mistake. Oh yeah. Um, I would say that's probably one of the biggest errors that we see is when people try to take that puppy and make it do adult dog things and then go, Oh, this dog sucks. And they try to, and they move on without really, you can't, it's like, you can't work all breeds the same way. You can't work a young dog like you do an older dog. Even though you see glimpses, like you said, we get tempted because we see those glimmers of like, wow, look what it can do. And then all of a sudden we push it and then there's a failure. And depending on how devastating that failure is for the dog, that we already know sometimes it's more devastating for the human than it is the dog. But the uh, by having that mentality, you're not setting yourself up for success and raising that young dog to become that strong, powerful adult dog. Yeah, and I, and I never understood stressors, you know, I never understood that if I, you know, I mean, I, I had an idea that if I put, you know, I could put stress on a dog, but I could just say the word, but I really wouldn't know it, I, I couldn't explain it, mm-hmm. um, until I started to make mistakes, and then you start to say, well, well, you know, this dog, I'm causing this problem, this isn't this dog, this is me, mm-hmm. um, which the training we're trying to do too quick, like all of a sudden this dog, you know, you, you have a, 
Timothold now or or Dutchy or German Shepherd that is 65, 70 pounds. He looks like a big dog, but he's not. You know, mentally they're not, physically they're not. And I think um, you've gotten really good at taking our time and making sure that, you know, that the dog is is as ready as as he's going to be before he enters like a, like a, uh, a formalized training program. Um, because, you know, I keep reminding myself that we're, you know, we're, we're teaching the good foundations and then whether they stay with us for training or whether they go somewhere else for training, the dog at least has to be solid in his foundation work so that somebody else, you know, hopefully a good trainer can take that dog and bring them to the next level of, of where they need to be. And that's, that's a big one mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen it too, because I know you've been around for a while, is that, <laughs> you know, the dogs that we used to get um, would be older. Mm-hmm. Um, some, A lot of them, because I never saw, I mean, I never saw a dog from Europe until probably I was on the police department for about seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, but prior to that, it was dogs that were basically found in junkyards, given away to the police department because they bit everybody. Mm-hmm. So you had you had you had older dogs with 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 whatever problem they came in with, and some of them were great dogs, but most of them probably weren't. You know, I can, but you would take these you know these big dogs and you would start training them like big dogs, yeah, you know, right away. And now we're getting what I I have police departments that are getting twelve month old dogs. Oh yeah. Then so now they have a twelve month old dog. And they bring it, and 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 you're like, hey man, you got a baby there. You know, that's a baby still. Um, so you know, I don't think everybody always understands, and I don't make a blanket statement, but I I know there's really great trainers out there that do. But you know, you get a 13 or 14 month old dog that's imported, um, it's still a baby. I mean, it may have it may have had a lot of stress put on it, depending on where it comes from, and it might bite harder than anything you've ever felt mm-hmm. and it might have a great hunt drive but it's still it's still going to be a 13 or 14 month old dog oh yeah um, no and that that leads to like you said that's a common uh error that happens well two things are happening like you brought up one is they get these dogs that are younger because that's the demand is so high and that's what they're having available to catch up with numbers is these younger dogs added to that the agencies are still having these you know, shortened you know, the school time frame is still so short, and they expect to take this young dog, ram it through training in that short period of time, and expect success. And that is so difficult to do. I mean, you know, taking that younger dog, you need you know, let's just say you get the twelve month old dog, six months of training. Now you're at eighteen months old, which is still a juvenile. You know, but what agency is going to, you know, know, those agencies are very few out there that will allow their canine program to be in school or to allow training to go on for six months before they go operational. You know, they want six weeks in operational. So, you know, we, we have set ourselves up for failure by trying to make that work. Now, you know, I think what's going to happen is because of that younger dog being available and needing to spend that require time to get it ready agencies will start to shift that pendulum a little bit 
and potentially allow more time. Now, you know, I know the reality of that is still very low, but, you know, the law enforcement will adjust when it has to. And those might be one of the things that is uh, will be faced by uh, agencies over time to start, you know, having more realistic training times and schedules to ensure that these dogs are successful at what they do. Um, so it, this leads me back to another uh, question. What age do you guys begin that formalized training? So when you say, okay, so formalized, so be, we won't let any dog leave until it's a year old. Okay. So if you came and, and, and you wanted, wanted a dog, then uh, it, it would be at least 12 months old. Mm-hmm. But that, that, that's kind of like our, and, and you don't really see that too much in the police dogs unless they're going to be training with us. And I'll give you an example in a minute. But um, I like, I personally like the 15 to 18 month range when a dog starts to enter some formalized yeah. training. Um, but as an example, if, if we have a dog that's 12 months old, like, like we have a detector school uh, class that's going to be starting, we have one, two of the dogs um that are coming from our kennels are going to be just at that 12 month 13 month old age range but we're going to get to do their insert we're going to get to do their eight weeks of detector school okay then they'll go back out on the street as a single purpose dog they'll come back to us in september and we'll get to put those dogs through another 10 weeks i'm sorry 12 weeks of patrol school so by the time that dog kind of leaves us it's now we're talking about a dog that's that's now 22 23 you know maybe almost two years old oh yeah and i love the fact that you do eight weeks of detection and then let them go out and go work and then bring them back for the patrol so doing detection prior to patrol i I agree i see tremendous value in following that protocol versus doing patrol then uh detection just because detection being more natural. It's a fun engagement with handler and dog, uh, where the patrol stuff, it, there's a lot of other pressures and, and, and stressors and conditions that the dog must do to perform to a recognized standard and so forth that require control that, you know, inhibits motivation or drive and things like that. So the fact that you let the dogs, you know, build on something that's, it's a, in the two, when it comes to a dog, highly enjoyable and fun and engagement with her handler, where the other one has a little bit more control and, and rules and things like that when it comes to patrol. Yeah, and, we, and we've had it go the other way, too. We've had it to where, you know, it just so, so happens that, the you know, they're going to enter the patrol class first and then go to the detection class second. But, um, and, and to your point, um, even our, even in the patrol training, is, is obviously as more serious as the work is. Mm-hmm. Um we still, we are still um, very like very much committed to having these guys bond with their dogs, mm-hmm. um, get build that good relationship. Even in the training, you know, we do a lot of, you know, they'll get everything they need, but a lot of the a lot of the the things that they'll do with their dogs, even in the patrol school, is a lot of engagement, mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, a lot of fun stuff because these dogs are still learning. Um, I know that you know at the end of the, at the end of their 12 weeks, you know, who knows what's going to happen on day one on the street. We get that, but, um, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's no compulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. um, big on, big on that. I think that builds, I think that builds 
better police dog. My, that's my personal sure. belief. No, I, I agree with that too. I mean, there, there's, we, of course there's rules, but how we go about creating conditions for those rules, uh, we can be much better than we used to be when it was a more of a heavy compulsive uh, methodology of training as opposed to what we can do now. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the, the separation is where, you know, someone, someone will often question and say, Oh, you guys do positive training. I say, well, you know, first off, explain to me what you mean by positive (laughs) training. Um, but if you're talking about, um, that we don't sit, you know, that we're, that we've moved away from, from heavy handed compulsion just for compulsion sake, then, then yes. Okay. Then you can call it, you can call it what you like. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, like you say, and uh, and you know there are there are going to be boundaries for these dogs because they are they are they do bite people, so um, but you can set boundaries for these dogs without uh, causing that conflict that comes with with you know, just compulsion or just a lot of compulsion or just a poor relationship between a handler and a dog. Um, I can still set boundaries. Um, you just mm-hmm. set them a different way. That's all. Sure. It's taken. It's taken me a while to 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 understand that, to mm-hmm. be honest. So, oh, yeah. Letting them fail by their own means sometimes is very difficult to go through when we're A-type, you know, personalities that want dogs to do this, this, and this. And if it doesn't do it, I can make you do it versus going, nope, I'm going to let you fail. I'm going to let you fail again. I'm going to let you fail another time. <laughs> and then it tests your patience and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, yeah, no, it's... It, you know, the old saying, you have to teach an old dog new tricks. Well, the old dog is usually us that has to understand what the new tricks are. Yeah, and I, I'm trying to think where, where I heard this. I heard this recently is that, um, you know, there, you know, and, I, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say that I'm one of these guys that, you know, I, you know, I hold a little guilt from, from like, you know, looking back and I can, I can say, hey, listen, you know, I did what I did because that's the way I was instructed and that's the way I learned and that's the way I thought that, that training was. Um, you know, but, um, you know, I've seen dogs get hurt. I mean, I think I've probably hurt my own partners for corrections in the past. Um, so there's a, there's some guilt there by saying, Hey, if only if I would have known a little bit now, what I know, you know, if I knew, uh, you know, then what I know now, um, I could have probably done it a little differently or a lot differently. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just as guilty, too. I, I look at myself and what I've learned and how I've become a better uh, handler trainer. Um, I wish, I wish, especially some of, some of the amazing dogs I had in my time uh, early in my career that I would have known what I know now and applied those things. I mean, that's life and that's learning. But uh, where we are now in today's training of, of dogs is definitely far better than we were 20 years ago. Uh, maybe obviously 30 years ago, you know, I started in 1995 was a class I went to and it it is drastically different. Um, And like you said, all we knew is what we knew. So it is what it is. And I don't ever justify or condone, but you know, our industry has been slower to adopt change now. Thanks to, like I said, the things earlier, which is internet and social media and YouTube and all those things. Information is, is far more available to everybody you're able to see newer techniques and understand stuff like these podcasts and stuff like this help us go, you know what? There might be a easier and or more efficient slash better way to educate and train and communicate to our dogs. So, you know, with, with that said, I want to 
go into, you know, we have like, uh, you know, we kind of, you know, Cindy talked about like what you guys look for in the puppies um, environmentally and, you know, sociability, what you're doing to them, raising them, getting them ready. And then you kind of brought into the training aspect and she covered some of those things, too. Um, now the dog goes into the school in that time frame. What is your guy's average success rate from dogs selected to dogs that get to that end state? So I can tell you, well, if if we're just talking about the law enforcement side. Sure. In the time that we've been putting dual purpose dogs through, and I want to say um, to date, to date we're talking probably – is it 40? I'm trying to think of the somewhere around 44 okay. of single, single and dual purpose dogs. Okay. I can think of one incident where if I had to do things again, I probably would have uh, probably put a dual purpose dog out that should not have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just some circumstances that if I could change, I would. Um, mm-hmm. But the success rate, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say the success rate is 100%. And the reason I want to say that is because we've never washed a dog, like a dog is never washed out. Okay. Because of something that happened during training. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, And even the dog that I'm talking about that I would have reservations about doing it again the dog showed us he, he kept showing us signs that he was going to improve and improve and improve mm-hmm. um and unfortunately i think it was a, we, he, he had a plateau in training and then after training dropped off sure um but the dogs that go th- that start on day 1 of a patrol class or a detector class they they make it all the way through and now how, but taking this back even further so at that puppy stage though let's just say in that from 8 weeks how many dogs do you guys have to look at or go through to get to where you get to that class stage? So how many uh, pups are you messing with? And you go, okay, out of these 10 pups I've looked at or we're, we're messing with with these different breeders, uh, we know or we, we've seen, is it two that work out? Is it, you know, eight? Or is it because of your selection testing initially that that, that puppy stage you're, you're – you're, average increases because your testing is solid and what you say when you select this okay let's we're gonna start with this dog here he's eight weeks old now we're gonna start our program with it those dogs make it all the way through so where's where's that point at where you have where you have to go through the dogs to get to what you want so if i use the like the current it depends on it, it some of it will depend on on how many dogs that i personally would have working towards the dual purpose goal so, um, as an example, um, there are five dogs currently that, that have, that have kind of gone through the, from the eight weeks up to, um, roughly some of them are anywhere between 10 months and 13 months right now. So out of those, out of those dogs, one dog will not go dual purpose. Um, 
but it still has another job. It'll still do detection or something else. So it's not like it's a washout. Yes. It just didn't no. fit the designed purpose at at let's say the initial selection aspect of it. Correct. So so if you took if you took all these dogs, they had, and you know this is where um, sometimes and it's hard it's hard for us to do because because data is so important. Mm-hmm. Is that and we never know how to put that gut feeling into data. Sure. Oh yeah. Um, so when we're testing dogs and we have dogs and, and, you know, my boss will come to me and say, what do you think? And I'll say, well, I'm not really sure about this one, you know, um, it's not showing me a lot of like, you know, and I, I can use words like, um, you know, intensity or, mm. um, you know, or, you know, how do you, you know, how do I connect data to it? The word intensity or, or, yeah. or, or, or anger. Um, yeah, or that metal in a dog, that that strength yeah. you want to engage and things like that. Yeah, right. So one of the dogs that we saw early that the only thing this shepherd was missing was the intensity on a bite. Mm-hmm. Like the bite, it was just a game. It yeah. was like a game. It was a game that was fun, and then when it was over, the dog was fine, and mm-hmm. the dog only did it because I think the dog thought it was fun, but there was no intensity there. So, um, you know, and I could probably go back and. And go, you know. There's always, there's always going to be one that one dog that's just not going to make it through a dual purpose program. Mm-hmm. I, you know. Now whether I have, no, I, and I never have like 15 dogs. You know, I may have depending on the puppies that come in. I could be training um, three or four dogs, or I could have as many as seven. Mm-hmm. And roughly, um, I would say that. You know, like you're like you kind of alluded to is you have one or two that are just not going to make it. Sure. You know, um, they're not going to make the dual purpose program. But, hey, they you know, we we try them again on rubble because we've had dogs that that were decent on rubble. But they were looking like they were going to be a police dog. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden they're not going to be a police dog. We put them back on rubble and the dog is, you know, is now a search and rescue dog or it's going to work single purpose mm-hmm. and like like i said earlier our our hurdle recently has been we don't have anybody coming and you know knocking at our door and asking us for pointy ear single purpose dogs canines talking sense webinars you have heard from many of our guests well now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the ford canine website All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford K9 now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordcanine.com. 
and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Sure. No, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's almost, a, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Eric Stambro from Working Dog Radio, he sat on a uh, really nice uh, single-purpose explosive detection female Malinois for a year before anybody actually bought it because nobody wanted, you know, that pointy ear dog. Um, you know, I, I've seen it numerous times myself. I'm in a unique environment here in Las Vegas. We're one of the few areas where almost all the casinos want pointy ear single purpose dogs because they want that image that nobody would know that it's not a single purpose dog, but it may be a dual purpose dog. So, you know, I know this area kind of bucks that trend, but, uh, you know, obviously TSA putting out the regulations that they didn't want any pointy ear dogs anymore, saturated the market with floppy ear dogs or the need for floppy ear dogs, just to say. And, you know, that kind of also continued to trend for anything within mass public transit wanted the same kind of concept. So, uh, yeah, that that goes into you know, kind of another question I had, which was um, when you, you know, you bring up the point of, hey, we went into this looking for X amount of dual purpose dogs. And as you go along, you know, there's going to be, you know, whatever the percentage of washouts is going to be. So I'll start at the breeder stage. So the breeder has 10 puppies. You guys go there and you pick out, let's just say, three to four pups to be your dual purpose dogs. Out of those three or four, you have your one that transitions out and, and it becomes a single purpose detection dog of some sort. Those other ones that you guys passed on on within for being dual purpose dogs, there were still probably pups in that remainder number of that litter that would have been easily single purpose dogs. But your intent when you looked at it initially was for dual purpose dogs. So let's just add a few more pups that became single-purpose dogs. Okay, so now you guys had four. There was three other ones. Now we're at seven. We have three left. Those three left could end up being either a therapy-type dog, could end up being one could end up just being a standard pet, and another one could end up being maybe a dog in some type of sport activity. So in your 10 dogs, so those that are always like, oh, what are we going to do with all these washouts? I'm a breeder, and I, and I, if I'm going to invest all my time, every single one of my dogs needs to be this top-tier you know, special dog that does dual-purpose work and makes me all the money. It, it, and people are missing the concept here, which is every dog has a job. Every dog will do something. There isn't this excessive washout rate of all these foster dogs that need to, you know, that are just going to be crap dogs running the streets of American cities because they, all these breeders overbred and we don't have these dogs available. It's, it's a, to me, it's a bunch of BS because Europe, which is far smaller than the United States, produces a vast majority of all the working dogs in the United States in the professional aspect, yet they don't have this abundance of dogs running all over the streets of Europe or overflowing the pounds and rescues because there are all these unwanted dogs and on and on and on. They understood early on the concept. 
they start off with those sport programs and then determine those strong dogs. Those strong dogs end up going to your vendors or, or to agencies over there and get jobs. So, and then the vendors, you know, snatch up other ones and, and send them to us or sell them to us. Um, so to me, it's an excuse to say why it doesn't work when that is thrown out there. Like, what are we going to do with all these washouts? Because there isn't necessarily a huge number of washouts. Are you going to deal with maybe some that are going to be a pet? Sure, but that is going to be a small percentage compared to the other dogs that will find jobs, any number of different jobs. And the cool thing that you brought up is with you guys, you guys have your dual purpose part that you do. You have your search and rescue part that you mentioned. You also even have the medical screening dogs, the medical detection dogs. So right there, you have three to four type categories and then, as you've brought up earlier, we were talking before, was there's the whole sport category that's exploding. Yeah, you know, that creates a and, whole nother demand. And that's that's the other thing I was going to say is like the untapped, the untapped communities out there um, are also like you know, like some of these very competitive nose work people, mm-hmm. um, and also the sports world. I mean, you know, quite frankly, a lot of the dogs that we're getting that we're you know so a lot of our breeders have bred some awesome sport dogs i mean that's what they're you know and and we're looking at their lines and we're seeing that you know um you know they had you know out of out of you know the last litter for example you know three dogs are working you know police work and two of them are 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 doing sport work and mm-hmm. you know one of them is you know one of them is just somebody's ended up being somebody's pet, but, um, but like you say that if, if, if I was a, you know, if I was a breeder, if I was looking at breeding dogs for programs, like I'm, you know, like mm-hmm. for, um, I would surely want to be kind of open-minded with what that litter produces. Sure. Like if, if I can produce a good, you know, out of five puppies, if two or three of them are going to, potentially be dual purpose dogs great if the other two are not then i then there's there's definitely work for them and um it's just a matter of tapping into that and then being able to uh, obviously have a market for it because but it's out there depending on on what i guess what you want to breed and what your goals are oh yeah i mean there's like and then like i said there's the whole search and rescue element. I mean, and that's a unique and a tough one in its own realm because of the environmental stuff. Um, that kind of gives me to an, another question I had, which was, you know, you get to see your luckier spot where there's SAR, the search and rescue aspect, there's the dual purpose canine aspect, and then there's the single purpose detection. What would you say, uh, or what category seems to get the most number of dogs, uh, selected and trained or, or I know you're focused on the dual side, but what side seems to be, the most successful in pups to operational. I think for a while there, it was close with, with the dual purpose dogs and the search and the USAR dogs, the search and rescue dogs. But but the USAR program is very successful. Um, and some of the dogs that either come out of our breedings or some of the dogs that have come out of our selection with with breeders who donate their dogs, um, there is a very high percentage of those dogs who from puppy to adult are successful in USAR. Um, you know, we have an awesome, you know, uh, training manager who is 
very schooled in the USAR world, and she, like many other people, can spot a USAR dog from the time that they're babies. Um, but the USAR program, does, it's very successful. And those dogs, oftentimes, um, very few of them end up being single purpose. And a lot of them I love to steal for single purpose dogs. <laughs> I bet. You know, oh, because yeah. they're, 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 it's everything you want in a single purpose dog. Like if I could get a lab with those kind of environmentals to search for bombs or drugs, mm-hmm. man, I would take that dog in a second. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the, the true worth of that dog is, is to go out and, and, you know, find someone who, who yeah. needs to be helped for sure. So what would you say then now? So that's what you guys see in your success rates. What is the highest demand between what were you guys getting the most requests for detection, dual purpose, uh, USAR? So we, it's almost as if we can't keep enough USAR dogs on property. Wow. Um, it's, um, that's, that's what it's been lately. We have, you know, this, the, the dual purpose dogs, they seem to, they seem to, they always move. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, you know, I say that because it depends on the dog because yeah. you can have, we've had, we have a, we've had some really strong dogs that really scare some new departments. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, but, um, it's for, and I, I don't know the reason right now, but, but the, the USAR community is absolutely, um, in need of, in need of dogs. And we are one of the resources. And I think that's why, um, they do get sold and moved. We've have, we have puppies that are sold at 10 weeks, like people wow. have already, like people already want those dogs. Um, and when I say people, no, I'm, I'm talking task force. Sure. Um, so, you know, we have, we have, uh, you know, one of the, one of the task forces out in Arizona that they just, they only want our dogs, um, for the most part. And, uh, we, we get a lot of inquiries that way as well. Um, and it's just cause the, of the dogs that we've put out from the USAR program, it's kind of like anywhere else, you know, people see those dogs, they want to know where they got them. Gotcha. So, and what would you say is the, the predominant breed that's been successful for you guys? We'll go USAR dual purpose and then single purpose, uh, detection dogs. What, what are the, uh, common breeds that you guys are working with and dealing with? So for, for USAR, it's, it's labs for sure. Um, you know, we've we've had some successful point years, um, but, but I'm trying to think uh, Dutch Shepherd that's out in New Mexico. Um, but again, and and there are and that's well, I'll back up to it. But that's one place where people will take a point year or a flop year, sure, which is yeah. different from the police world. So, um, and uh, for the police side, it's it's I don't think it's it's quite dominant in any one category. I think we've had a fair amount of German shepherds, males and Dutchies, and they've all done well. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I tend to lean towards the males and the Dutchies myself, but some of our strongest dogs have been, are still your shepherds. Um, 
No. It goes to show the breeding aspect because, you know, you and I have been around long enough where uh, obviously when we first came in, it was German Shepherd only. You had so many agencies that were like, hell no to the Malinois. And then, you know, fast forward into the early 2000s, and then the Malinois kind of became more in numbers than the German Shepherd. And that was obviously attributed to a lot of the breeding complexities and, and uh, things that weren't needed or desired or issues that came from the overbreeding of the German Shepherds. And, of course, where are we at now with the Malinois? We're starting to see some of those things crop up in the Mal. Maybe not as bad as it was with the Shepherd, but uh, we're going through a lot more Mal's with various issues that did not exist in the early 2000s that are prevalent now. Uh, which then, because the shepherd hadn't been tapped uh, as a resource as strongly, I'm seeing some of those mouths increase, or sorry, one of the shepherds increase as far as being good. But I'm also, I'm sure you're seeing it too, the crossbreeding, the crossbreeding of the mouth to the shepherd and kind of giving that shepherd back some of that uh, stronger working side, even though so it'll look more like a shepherd, uh, where you're seeing some of the good qualities of that strong motivation, that strong desire, that uh, solid nerve for environmentals and things like that. Yeah. And, I, and the, just to answer the last part, I think the for the single purpose dogs, the, what we're seeing is the, the dogs that are, that are successful and that are moving out the door are going to be the ones that don't make it in the USAR program, end up coming in the single purpose program and have floppy ears and they're in demand. Um, you know, but uh, I think, like getting to your last point is I, I, and I think this is where, you know, really trying to find those breeders who are really um, concerned about genetics and, you know, where their dogs go and, and how their dogs and actually keep a track of, of how, you know, where their dogs go in the world as far as, you know, working. I think that's also big too, because um, when we, when we find a really good breeder that's donated dogs to us, we we like to go back to that breeder again and there are some really great breeders in this country um for you know for dogs and i don't know if if we're really utilizing that um that resource you know, no i yeah I that resource full, is, i fully agree with that there, there's some magnificent you know breeders putting out some amazing dogs that just don't even get looked at because it didn't come from overseas and, you know, you know, you're going to hear me, everybody keeps t- hearing me talk about it. I'm, I'm, we're going to do a joint podcast with Working Dog Radio about this. You know, we have amazing resources here in the United States that are not getting utilized. And I'm running into breeders all the time now because of the cognition stuff I've been doing with Duke that are out there like, just show us what you want. You know, we, we are happy to start producing these dogs or or you're raising these dogs, uh, you know, some, some breeders normally, you know, that used to be the mentality was breeders like, I want to sell that dog as quickly as possible. Um, I'm running into more breeders now that are willing to uh, invest that time in raising that dog and or they have their own network of trainers slash handlers who will, you know, raise a dog, whether it be retired cop or military personnel or what have you that are like those foster families in a sense that will take the time and raise them. And then, there's plenty of vendors in the United States that do nothing but train and work dogs all day long that could easily take on one or two puppies and start raising, which will also, as trainers, just for people that are listening, nothing is going to build your skill set better than learning how to do it from zero with a pup and how to raise that dog and get it to do what it does 
by by raising a puppy. Your training skill set will vastly increase because you have to learn how to communicate, and it really builds builds up uh, your skill set. Um, yeah. You know, back. Which circling, is funny. Go ahead. I was going to say it was funny because when you say communicating, and I know you you talk a lot about uh, marking, right? Mm-hmm. You know, using markers yep. and all. And I just think it's funny because um, I never knew what one was until I started working at Penn. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I usually have four or five of them go for the wash every day. So. Oh yeah, no, for sure. And that's and it's funny. And, and thank goodness, you know, seven or eight years ago when I used to go around teaching the class to law enforcement about how to use markers and bridge and things like that, people thought I was, you know, kind of nuts. And now it's easily at that 35% range of the professional world that use markers. And of course I do my classes now and I'm like, just so you guys all know, you're all using markers. You're just using a lot of body language markers versus an, a, a one that you've designed purposely. That's an audible one, but you know, it, it's well, think, good. Yeah. And I think that it's kind of like that, 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 that shift in, in training as well, where when, um, like our, like our, like our cops come in and some of them are young, it's their first dog. And, you know, part of their training is, Hey, do, you know, like, here's your, here's your, here's your clicker and we're going to show you how to use it and you're going to use it for your career. Um, you know, and, and even some of the, you know, even some guys that, that come in and you know, they're on their second dog they may have trained somewhere else. Um, you know, we hand them a clicker and they look at us like, like, I. Then you know what you want to do this because, Why are you giving this to me? Yeah, but I think once they once they understand it, yeah. and once they see it in in, in action, it yep. becomes it becomes like a in my personal opinion, it becomes a no brainer. Yeah, you can't um, argue with the success. You can't argue with the fact of how much more freedom you have as a handler. You're not being yelled at. Stop moving. You're moving too quickly. You're doing all that crap goes away because the system of the communication to the dog is so clear. Oh, hunt. Locate odor, indicate, wait for signal. Not hunt, locate odor. What's my handler doing? What's my handler doing? Okay, my handler's doing. You know, all of that crap goes away. But even it goes even further than that. It goes into oh yeah, of course. Know, any any aspect of 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 what you want that dog to do, whether oh, for it's sure. in obedience, whether you know wherever it is. I've oh. seen you know it's it's a it's a clear communication to the dog in so many in so many places. I've seen. Um, we actually try to we actually try to 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 blend the clicker in with the out. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Uh, I'm still still experimenting with that because you know the out is everybody's you know kind of albatross sometimes. Sure. But, um, you know I but um, you know I think I think it's got a lot of use in dog training in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, and you know I still I still know trainers today that think it's a joke oh yeah oh of course and it's okay i mean believe me they'll get this point in my life yeah no they'll get passed up because as the canine world's evolving which it's doing they will get passed up and they'll be the guys out there doing the old stuff and that's that's evolution right there for us you know how many still of us use a typewriter it still works i can still send you a letter i can type it out send it to you put in the mail i also have a computer phone and tablet that can send you an email a whole lot faster. Both work. There's just one that's far more efficient and is, you know, has other advantages to it because of the technological advances to it as opposed to the other one. But hey, if you still want to be that guy using the typewriter, knock yourself out. 
Right. And it's even goes into, um, you know, like the use of the e-collar, um, that can, that is, you know, when used, when, when used properly, that can be a, a very good communication, communication tool mm-hmm. with certain dogs, mm-hmm. um, versus how I was taught to use it originally, which was the big hammer. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we've, we've, we've done everything with this dog. It won't recall, go grab the car and, and we'll throw, we'll turn it up to a hundred. And if it's a, if it's a dog that was trained in Europe, he'll fight right through it. And now you're back to square one. Oh yeah. And what I was lucky enough to be taught, you know, actually recently by some really good knowledgeable people on in the Naval Special Warfare side who yep. kind of showed me how to use it as a communication tool versus yep. a, a punitive. <laughs> yeah. So you now there's a lot of things out there that if used properly, yeah. Can can be amazing. Yep. No, it's it, it was, you know, I adopted using the e-collar as a communication tool early on before I hit Naval Special Warfare. Uh, and it was very important to us once I got into that program. Like, And they were already, for the most part, there. Um, it increased even more during my time just because there was more classes going on, more opportunities for everybody to learn. Uh, but yeah, it was definitely one of those, another one of those evolutionary uh, type tools uh, that enhanced. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't just a correction device; it was a communication device, and that was super important for uh, people to understand. And due to the turnover within special operations, uh, you end up teaching a lot of people in a shorter period of time. But then that word travels, and that education travels faster because uh, the downside is the turnover, but a plus side is I also educate. Uh, or as trainers that work within those kind of programs, they get to educate uh, a vast number of, of handlers and students to understand best communication methods with dogs and, and animals in general. And we were lucky on our coast. I had the uh, Naval Mammal Program where I was at. So ironically, the gentleman that runs the Naval Mammal Program is also a reserve deputy in the nearby county, canine handler, for 28 years. So... He was well-versed in what we did as, as dog handlers, but he also was well ahead of his ability in, a, in the dog world because of what his training and background was uh, with mammals, uh, specifically marine mammals. So, um, you know, having him to go to and, and bounce ideas off and talk to, I still always, you know, probably every few months we see each other either at a conference or we talk to each other on the phone. Uh, you know, he was way ahead of his time uh, because he came in from the marine mammal, you know, world into the dog world, but he loved being a cop, but he wasn't making his living being a cop. He was making his living, you know, being the director of training for the Naval Mammal Program. So unique crossover, but it worked well for those of us that were lucky enough to be on the West Coast that uh, has that resource in our backyard. Um, I was going to circle back on that breed thing real quick. How often, uh, so what I see quite often is, uh, German short hair pointers are really starting to increase in utilization within the detection dog community. I've really enjoyed using them. You know, for me, what I like about them is a lot of times they're autopilot. They're just natural dogs that learn how to work airborne scent very, very well, just because that's initially what their breeding design is for. And of course, there's the huge plus that they come in with most times a built-in indication that's 100% natural and very, very easy to read for a new handler. Um, how have you guys or have you guys even – because I know you guys do that that crossover between the USAR world and, and detection. but uh, And obviously pointers aren't very popular on the USAR, USAR side of things. However, 
Uh, have you seen that, uh, that breed trend as well from your point of view? We, we haven't seen it in this area. Um, you know, I, I, I know that we've had, we've had one or two breeders contact us about donating puppies. I think that's, that's, those breeds are being considered. Um, there's a lot of things that are considered when we, when we take on, um, any breed, which is comes from, our, from the veterinarian side as well, as far as, um, you know, temperament, um, you know, health history, things like that. So I know that a lot of that, I know that a lot of that is part of whether we take any specific breed. Um, so, but I think right now we do not, that I know of, have any breeders right now that we're going to take any of the of the short hair pointers um doesn't mean that they're not going to show happen. up it just hasn't happened yet yeah it's it's not like we're it's it, we're opposed to it it just yeah. hasn't happened yeah no um, it's it's an interesting trend i've seen and and what i'm already seeing through the communities that i'm in and following um they're they're seeing a drastic difference in like holy cow this is you know in a lot of cases it's easier to handle um very easy to read the downsides are currently the vast numbers of the these dogs that exist come from the hunting dog world, which is a positive. The downside to that, though, is these dogs hadn't been exposed to, uh, let's say, the human environmental aspect. They're used to the open woodland and, you know, gaming and all that kind of stuff. But when you brought them into a, you know, busy rural environment uh, or urban environment, to say, they struggle more as far as numbers go. But I, I know I've been lucky the past, uh, let's say, year and a half, two years, I, you know, I've been able to tap into a good resource and get lots of those, not say lots, but I, I'm getting more of those than I am of Labradors that are working out just because the the breeders that are now from that that breed uh, know what to look for and what to prepare for. So we're seeing more of those in, like I said, the circles that I've been running in. But it was just an interesting thing uh, to see that transformation. It reminds me a lot of the time where we went from German Shepherd to Mal. I'm seeing some of that same kind of overlap from Labrador to Pointer. Um, so there's no, definitely not the same lines drawn in the sand when it came to breed preference like there was with Mal and Shepherd. Uh, most of the detection dog world's happy with either or. Uh, is just seeing more of those numbers, but uh, but back to an, uh, another point here was you know like I said we've both been around this a long time. How has because you've hit it on a couple of times, but really at the end of the day in a like a broad statement, how has science changed you as a police dog trainer and handler? What have you seen, or what's the biggest takeaways from you that said you know what I'm very you know this that or the other about science entering our, our, our canine world? Well, it's like we're, we're kind of in this unique place here um, where, um, you know, data, data drives a lot of our training. Um, so what we find out and on, on the medical side of, of the detection work, there's, there's tons of, of, of information that comes out of, of that side we are constantly collecting data on all of our um, detection work, um, more so than than like on the dual purpose side. I mean, that's it's kind of hard to quantify sometimes bite bite work and things like that. But like I, where I find the most interest in what changes the how I do detection work is 
the studies that are coming out, um, you know, the work of people like, you know, like, you know, Nathan Hale, and, I mean, Nathan Hall, um, uh, things that come out of, out of that realm. Um, some, of the, some of the other studies just that come out of, you know, contamination of, of your training aids, um, whether or not, you know, how odor moves, um, like so much that goes into working, um, the detection dogs is more scientific now than I ever thought I would find myself, you know, you know, being allowed to, to get kind of sucked into, um, you know, I've been, you know, you, you kind of take all the things that you, that you kind of understand of how to get a dog to do something, you know, train them to find odor. But then, um, you know, I'll give you a, for, for an example is just, just reward systems, um, where for the longest time we were, you know, like, like a one for one ratio. Like if you, you know, you know, click, here's your reward. And, and I understand there's a, you know, I still will do that early with the puppies. Um, you know, that's one thing, but some of the recent work that's come out where, um, variable ratio, uh, reward systems, you know, strengthen the behavior that you want. Um, so kind of getting tied into what is being done to, to help us be better trainers. I, I think I, I think I'm more interested in that now than I ever was. Um, and I'm willing to be flexible too. I'm willing to try something. So if, uh, just, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about this the other day where, you know, back in the day, you're, you know, a lot of the times our dogs on the patrol side were rewarded with praise. Um, you know, and, and, and on the detection side, we would throw a towel at the, you know, a towel at the source. Um, you know, recently there's been some work that's come out, uh, where it shows how, how much praise, um, is often a great source of reward for a dog. So in other words, you know, some dogs will actually seek praise more than they will say like like a toy. So we, so, so we'll use some of that. So some, there's, there's times where, you know, you know, dog will click, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll click. Literally and figuratively. Dog, yeah. A dog will come back. You know, he gets, he gets some verbal and physical praise and we move on. And then maybe the next hide it's, it's toy. Yep. And maybe another hide it's food or, you know, I mean, yeah. you can, you oh, can yeah. really use a lot of this to your advantage. And this comes out of other people's research. And, um, that's, that's what I think you know, what I kind of enjoy the most is, tr- is trying things that other people have put a lot of time into. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. With their research. No. And, and, and you hit on a lot of the same things that, you know, I've gone through after all the years was, you know, without a doubt, the detection community has probably the most uh, connection and change and effect from the science community, because, you know, when we're dealing with things such as fourth amendment, search and seizure rights, uh, medical stuff, explosive uh, training and, and deployment, we needed to have the scientific and uh, psychological community give us information to make us better at our job, but also 
enhance our standard. You know, we both know in the in the bomb dog world doing an odor recognition test, you know, we all thought of it as a pain in the ass and just didn't like it, but we we did it. We you know, we also knew there were certain uh, federal guidelines that we had to follow and that was one of them. Um, with the drug dog world, it's now gaining popularity and to me it should be a must have and there's thank goodness there's states like Illinois and other places that are starting to adopt this where it's gonna be mandatory that odor recognition test is part of the canine team evaluation. So it's it's phase one, you know, does the dog know odor when presented against other non-target odor samples and blank samples? And on a baseline level, conditions all being the same, can the dog successfully identify the odor? That's like a great, like, lack of a better term, calibration of the dog's nose. And then the peer review version of that is your dog going out and doing an operational certification where you as a handler and your dog face various types of real-world environments to see if does your dog also locate and indicate properly that it has found any target odor in those environments. And that twofold process hasn't really existed in the drug dog world. But if we, for medical purposes, constantly do ORTs in that aspect, and that's just medical, when it comes to, like I said, the legal side of things, we must do things like this. You know, it only enhances and, and I say much is my opinion but if you want to enhance showing that your dog is reliable to a probable cause standard and scrutiny by defense experts and you know questioning by the legal system why wouldn't you want to do this you know why why would you shy away go yeah you could do it but you don't need it why not do it and say look I do it yeah I may not need it but look I this is what I do to show that I calibrate my furry sensor, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, and our, you know, it's, I, I find myself being influenced by, you know, a, a lot of other great trainers out there. Um, things that I've either listened to or, or people I've met and, and they've shown me things, but even now we're like our detection class will be different this year than it was last year because of, of changes that we'll make, whether it's, um, you know, um, even though our explosive course always had an odor recognition, uh, test building, we're now building one into the, to the detector, to the drug side too. Um, you know, single and double blinds, um, are, are part of now our, even, even our, our UDC training with, uh, with the puppies and the, and our, and our dogs. But we even do the same thing now with our in-service stuff. So it is not unheard of for, you know, one of my groups to show up for explosive training and their problem, you know, that day is, you know, you know, this is the areas you're going to, going to search, you know, 14 of you guys are going to have to come up with a plan to search this building. And you can come, you come back and you tell me what you found or what you didn't find. And, you know, they're out there, you know, and, and the funny part is, is that a lot of them are always right, but they even doubt themselves. So, but, but it's, I, you know, I think, you know, that kind of training, you know, along, along with making sure that everybody's, you know, squared away, you know, I like putting, I like putting eyes on a team all the time, but they don't need me, um, all the time because they've got their dog and, they, you know, it's the dog that they need to trust. And if we can make a strong dog, then the handler should be confident. And I, and I think we're starting, like, I, I think personally, 
I'm starting to see that where if I put that into our puppy program now, that when we do pass these dogs off or we do train these dogs a little further in their career odors, we can really show them, a, you know, we can, we can give the confidence to the handler right away by not holding their hand for every search throughout an eight-week program so that, you know, in week three, you're going to do a double blind today. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? You know, you're, you're in training. Yeah. So it's what I preached even to the sport world, you know, because they always, you know, there's a, there's a emotional connection that's fairly strong with the, cause a lot of these come from the pet side of things, but I'm like, there's nothing wrong with failure, fail here in training. So that way you're successful when you go to trial. And it's the same concept on the professional side. We design and set up training to that way if you do fail, you learn from it and then you can apply what you got, those mistakes you made and not do those again or reduce the likelihood that you'll do those again. It's not about always trying to set it up for it's always a success. It has to be successful. My dog always has to win. It, we can screw up. The dog, we all know the dog is not perfect. And anybody who ever tells me or submits me training records at like 95% and higher, I know you're full of crap because we know the dogs aren't always at those levels. Neither are we. So in the legal system on the professional side, easily accepts the dogs that are in that, let's just say 70 percentile, because to meet probable cause means it's probable, not certainty. So, you know, th those are things that we always have to uh, understand. And it's good that that science is coming into our world because it also even gives us ways to how to better rate our reliability standards. You know, I just had Michelle Mon and, and Jenna Gadbury on a webinar the other night. And they even show the easy mathematical equation to do to always know what your dog's stats are. And it looks like at first you're like, oh, my gosh, this is like a, a calculus equation. And really quickly, all you're doing is just tabulating what your indications were on a lineup, how many items are present, what your dog searched and what the dog indicated to and gives you reliability. And, and it's really easy to do. But things that we never measured before was non-target materials present and what, and what those were. And, you know, how the dog reacted to it and, and things like that. So, yeah, there's a it's it's really, you know, obviously we're in this. I make my joke and people laugh, but in this canine kind of renaissance period in detection dogs where we are changing more in the past 10 years than we ever have in the past 30 years on detection work. And and, and that's those that are starting their careers now are a far better advantage than we were that started in the 80s and 90s. So, you know, that's a that's a good th that's a good thing for them. So, on to my last question for you. Uh what would what's what would you say is a important key for success in raising that puppy to professional dog or you know, what would you what is the advice you would give somebody that says, "Hey, I've got a good pup here." I and I'm going to, my goal is to raise it to become my working dog. What is the advice or the keys to success that you would uh, hand to them? Man, that's like, that's, I don't know if it's, <laughs> it's a one word. Um, there, I know there's not one thing, so you can, you can yeah. kind of just, you know, you know, hit the uh, high points. So um, I think the, 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 the best thing I could offer would be patience. Yes. Um, I think patience, uh, if, if everything else being equal, if, if you know how to train a dog, if you've got some experience, you know, and, and you kind of know what you want, I think, I think if, 
patience is is what I've learned has been my you know has been the the probably the the best thing I've learned when I went from the police side to um you know my last couple of years as a police officer kind of going over to uh, the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, where um, you know I was—it's—it's it's a mix of trainers, including you know, you know, um, people who've never done police work, and I'm you know one of those people. Well, if you're not a cop, then how can you train a dog? Um, so I've learned patience. I've learned patience with with um, not only with the dog and the dog's ability to learn, but patience with myself, and you know. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, no, that's what that, I would, that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. Because that patience is so critical for, you know, working with a young dog, um, yeah, and just in training because people always want to rush through the training or want immediate success or expect this quick success. Uh, and it's one of my bullet points in all my PowerPoints that I have is what's the one thing that we severely lack in this career field when working with dogs uh, the character trait that we lack is patience. You know, we want to force things and make things happen and stuff like that. And just taking time, being patient, sometimes just doing one rep of something has far more value than anything else. And and it's the same thing I do preach to the individuals I've worked with with puppies is be patient. There's no rush. Just take your time. It's quality over quantity, you know. Um, the other key points I typically make is like we talk about, Work on the environment stuff. The environmental stuff can never be overlooked. Don't worry about so much rushing into the training aspect. Let the dog be a dog. Let the dog experience the world in the environment. And then create some games that help build those dogs' natural qualities or strengthen some of the weaker ones. And if you just follow those simple guidelines, you'll start having uh, a successful raising program of dogs, whether it be from breeder to, you know, vendor or, uh, an individual who got a puppy and wants to raise it to become their next working dog, taking the time, being patient, uh, having a plan and process, the topics that we talked about will help ensure you have the best chance for success. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's what's so great about Penn Vet is kind of putting together that process that we know, uh, in this country is where we lack, like we talked about earlier, we have the genetics here. So the product exists. We have people here who know what they're doing. We just need to establish our process of raising these pups to professional dogs. And just because it doesn't become a professional dog doesn't mean it's not worth anything. There's so many great things that these other pups can go do, uh, that are all an asset to, as a dog, to our to humanity, to what we need and what we want dogs to do for us. So, yeah. so, so on our side, so we call those dogs contributors. Yeah. So, so we have dogs that have entered our program and for whatever reason has come up, the dogs have, you know, we've, we've offered dogs back, you know, to their fosters. Mm -hmm. They've gone back to the breeders or they've gone on to a different career, whether it be as, you know, um, um, you know, a, uh, well, I'm just forgetting the word I'm looking like for. Like a therapy right dog or... Like a th yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll call them contributors because during their time with us, they've contributed data. They've contributed information. They've contributed to the program in some way. And so we don't look at, it, at any of those dogs as failures. No, if, absolutely if, not. So It's a great thing. 
Well, so for those that want to reach out to you or ask questions or contact you, what's the easy way to get a hold of you? Um, the probably the best way is if you uh, contact me by email, which mm-hmm. is uh, the easiest way. I, I always get back to people. I can give that to you. Or you, or you can... Yeah, you can give it to me, and I'll put in the show notes. So versus trying to spell it out and do it over the over the air. Yeah, but yeah, we will put your contact info in the show notes. Your email. Um, yeah. And are, are there any conferences or things coming up regarding PenVet? Is there a school coming up that you guys are doing? So uh, the thing I'll, I'll note is that I do have a Facebook page that I just put your name on. Okay, so you'll, great. You'll never, you'll never see a latte or a hamburger <laughs> on there. Or what food but you're you eating see, that day. Yeah. <laughs> you will see dog training. You will see everything from imprinting puppies awesome. to – you know, passive passive bites under desks for for dual purpose dogs. Um, uh, as far as conferences, unfortunately, the our yep. current our current current COVID nineteen has it 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 shut our our conference our biannual conference down this year. We are doing it on on a web platform though. Yeah. So the the twenty twenty working dog conference is online this year it starts um i believe the weekend of the 24th and there is a web page that you can go to directly to register okay. and uh simon prince is one of the um presenters speakers nice uh, yeah he's one of the presenters and there's also uh nathan hall is a presenter so there's a lot of good people that are still able to pass information on to anyone who would like to um, go to a conference this year from their desk since we're all yeah. stuck in our homes. Yeah. So on, the, um, on this wonderful virus lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Well, I can't thank you enough for, for taking your time and, and coming on to the, to talking sense and, and sharing your knowledge and your background and what you've done with, uh, with PenVet. Um, I look forward to further collaborating in some way or another. Like I even said with Cindy, you know, I'm more than happy to help and contribute and I love having this platform for you guys to share information. But again, thanks for taking your time and and spending this this hour and a half to to let, talk to the listeners and and share what you guys are doing there at PenVet. Yeah, and I and I appreciate the fact that um, you know your platform, and I know there's just some uh, some other people out there with some really nice podcasts, and, and I think the the contributions that like this show specifically makes is that you're 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 bringing on a lot of people that we would normally ever get to listen to um uh you know names that we've heard but until you can sit and listen to somebody for a half hour or an hour talk about um what they're doing presently for training um for me it's been a game changer for you know this podcast and some others have just given me the opportunity to listen and learn and i think that's kind of key if you want to be a good dog trainer you've got you've got to be able to take what other people are doing and and, and decide whether or not that, that that's something that you want to do and i like i said i i love experimenting dog, you know, dog training is an experiment i love taking ideas from other people and giving them credit so oh yeah um, no <laughs> some of the some of the best dog training techniques i've easily and happily stole from watching what they do <laughs> yeah if i ever invent something and i'm the originator of it i'll i'm sure i'll somehow pad it but until then i'm just gonna, <laughs> yeah, I'm, just gonna I'm, I'm a happy user yeah me too <laughs> 
No, I appreciate it, Cameron. Thank you very much. No problem. And everybody listening, thank you for listening to this episode of Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy.